you guys to join us for family retreat. Uh, definitely encourage you guys to do that. Family retreat is definitely a special time. We get to, um, get to enjoy each other's presence and get to do that away from our busy lives. It's a really uh, fun time. It's an encouraging time. And, uh, you know, even if you're in, in college or in grad school and you have homework, yes, I know you have homework, but it's, it's worth planning ahead for. It's worth um, even bringing your homework to. Um, there are people, believe it or not, who bring their homework to retreat. Uh, I remember doing that um, back when I was in high school. We would stay up to like 2 or 3 in the morning on a Saturday just because, you know, last night before for retreats over and we're just like oh okay we, we're doing our homework but oh wait we also want to probably prank some people let's go do that or so it, it's just a, it's a really fun time of bonding if you're not sure um about whether you want to stay at this church or not or uh if you're just not really comfortable or if you don't know a lot of people here uh, at this church retreat is an excellent time for you to get a, uh, to get to know the church kind of with our hair down if you will um, so highly encourage you to, to go to retreat. If you do need financial assistance, please let uh, either my, uh, me or Pastor Ray know. We'll be uh, glad to, um, to help you out uh, in terms of, uh, we'll, we'll connect you with Archie and, and we'll get you to retreat, okay? So uh, just, just let us know. Um, all right. Well, I'm glad to see all of you here tonight. As Alex said, we're going to be uh, going back to our study in the book of Judges, and we're going to be concluding our time with one of the Bible's most recognizable characters due to his strength and also his sinful womanizing. Um, as we are studying a familiar character uh, in Samson, right, we, we come across this uh, familiar relationship that he has with Delilah, also in how, he, how Samson died. You know, the easy takeaway is Samson was sinful, don't be like Samson, right? That's the easy takeaway. But I want to remind you also of the theological background that's at play here in Judges as well. And there are definitely a lot of, uh, of lessons and applications that we can draw personally from the book of Judges, especially, you know, don't be like Israel, don't follow their broken example. Um, but there's more to it as well. Right. And it's not wrong to, to recognize that there are sin cycles in the book of Judges and that we don't want to be like Israel who continue to sin against God, cry out for repentance, get delivered, and then fall back into it again. We don't want to be like that, right? but we also have to zoom back out, right? get out of, the, get out of the, uh, the, the trees and look at the entire forest and remember what God is doing um, big picture. Right? We have to remember that God... He sets up the book of Judges so that you can see how sinful and desperately wicked Israel was and how much they needed a king to rule over them. Right? They were a bunch of loosely affiliated tribes lost in their sin, not representing God as they should. They needed a king. And what God is trying to do in the book of Judges is help them see their need for a king. So that's why Judges is this black backdrop upon which the diamond of Ruth shines. Right? Ruth points us further down the line to David, the ultimate ki the, the, the king that will ultimately lead to Jesus. Right? So there is, a, there is a, a plan here. There's a structure. There's a flow to the, to the Old Testament. It's all pointing us eventually to Christ and trying to help us see how God is moving all of human history that way. Right? And so we know that the book of Judges and Samson's role uh, in the book of Judges is a part of God's plan somehow, but hopefully after tonight, you have a greater appreciation for what God is doing in the book of Judges. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we are grateful to you for your loving kindness to us and for how you give us your word and, and 
not only do you give us moral instruction, but you help us to understand who you are and what you're doing. We pray that as we look at a very familiar passage tonight, that we wouldn't, we wouldn't be um, lulled to sleep because we're familiar with the story, that we wouldn't be bored and uh, despise uh, the story of Samson just because we've heard it a bunch of times when we were growing up in Sunday school. But Lord, may we see more of what you're doing as we look at the details, as we understand the theology behind, uh, behind the book, and help us to have a greater appreciation of who you are and what you're doing. Um, Lord, we pray that you would bring yourself great glory and honor this evening as we study your word, and it's your sons that we pray. Amen. I know that the majority of you are not super excited or fanatical about sports. At least in general, you're not. Right? Most of you, though, know sports well enough where you know that people who love sports are always looking for the next big star. Right? Who will be the face of the franchise or the face of the sport? Who can not only sell tickets because of their athletic ability, but also can sell tickets due to their ability to win. Right? Even if you don't particularly care about sports, hasn't it been exciting these past, uh, these past 10 years, actually, this last decade, where we've had tastes of success from our local hockey, baseball, football, and basketball teams? Right? It's kind of exciting when it's playoff time. Right? You might not care about the sport at all during the regular season, but when it's playoff time, ooh, it's fun. Right? We get to go hang out at people's houses. We get to eat ribs and wings and pizza, and we get to watch People play ball and hear people yelling and screaming at the TV, and we're just like, what's wrong with you? Uh, do you need a doctor? You know? Um, but this is the excitement that comes with watching sports, right? We're all, we want our team, especially our local team, to win. And the way that they win is usually with the best players. And that's why every team is looking for the next big thing, the next big star who will lead their franchise into the future, into a successful future. Nothing is more exciting for sports fans than when a superstar potential talent gets drafted onto one of their teams. Sometimes it works out extremely well, like in the case of Steph Curry, where he was drafted in the hopes that he would become a superstar, and, or at least a star, and he's transformed into a superstar. And other times it works out miserably. The, 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 the athlete cannot meet up to expectation, and they once had a big name when they were in college, but now they fade out into irrelevance and infamy, especially since they didn't meet up to expectations. And in a sense, in a sense, this is what we encounter when we look at the life of Samson. The nation of Israel was caught again in sin, and they cried out to God to deliver them from the hands of the Philistines. Because the Philistines were the ones that God used to discipline them so that they might repent. And when the right time came, God miraculously opened the womb of a woman who was once thought barren to provide a son, just like he did in the past, right? He did that for Sarah, he did that for Rebecca, and he did that for Rachel. And so if you're, you're a part of Israel, you're reading this story, you're thinking, oh, God opened the womb of someone who couldn't have a child miraculously, and he speaks to this lady just like he did for Sarah and Rebecca. This guy is probably going to be really special. Right? Things are looking up. Hope is starting to rise. Because God previously did big things through these sons who were born to these ladies whose wombs were closed. So is God, in the birth of Samson, going to do something 
big? Is he going to provide them with a savior? Now, while Samson's beginnings provided so much promise, especially since his devout parents kept him as a Nazarite, as God commanded them to, we quickly see, the more that we are acquainted with his life, that Samson is beginning to look like a bust. He's not good. He routinely defiles himself by touching things that are unclean, and he allows for his heart to be drawn to foreign women, women who will lead him to uh, to do bad things, women who will try and lead his heart astray from the worship of the one true God. He does not look like he's going to amount to much, not even a savior, right? Because even if he does good things, his life doesn't reflect a love for God. Nevertheless, what we find tonight as we look at the familiar story of Samson's fall is that God can still use someone who's a bust to accomplish his purposes, Right? Even if we have every reason to give up when we look at the life of Samson, God's not done with his people. Right? And he can even use the significant flaws of his people to bring himself glory. And this evening, we're going to see that through three evidences. Three evidences of God's providence in Samson's flawed life that helps us trust God more. Three evidences of God's providence in Samson's flawed life that helps us trust God more. And the first evidence of God's providence is God elevates the threat of Samson. God elevates the threat of Samson. We're in the book of Judges chapter 16. We're going to look at verse, we're going to start in verse 1. Now Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there and went into her. When it was told to the Gazites, saying, Samson has come here, they surrounded the place and lay lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. And they kept silent all night, saying, let us wait until the morning light, then we will kill him. Now, Samson lay until midnight. And at midnight, he arose and took hold of the doors of the city gate and the two posts and pulled them up along with the bars. Then he put them on his shoulders and carried them up to the top of the mountain, which is opposite Hebron. So some unspecified amount of time after Samson killed the thousand Philistine men with the jawbone of a donkey uh, as they sought to avenge their fallen countrymen from Samson's revenge, Samson goes down to Gaza. And we don't have any indication from the author why Samson goes down to Gaza. But he goes down to Gaza without reason. He takes a look around and he sees a harlot. He sees a harlot. And, you know, we don't know whether his sole purpose was to go down there uh, just to see this particular harlot. We don't know why he's there. He's just there. Right? Gaza is a city that's about 45 miles away from Samson's hometown. So it's really kind of curious as to why he's there. But we don't know. Right? The significant thing is that he went, he saw, and he lusted after this harlot. And he paid her for her services. Now, um, this is the second time. Right? This is the second time in the life of Samson that we see that Samson is driven by the desires of his eyes, the lust of his eyes. Right? The first time we saw that was back in Judges 14, 1, 2, when Samson sees his first wife. And upon seeing her, he demands that his parents get her for him as his wife. He says to them, he says to them, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her 
for me as a wife. Right? He saw, he lusted, and he went and pursued her. Now here, similarly in chapter 16, he sees this harlot. He desires her, and he hires her. And so in a sense, what you see here with Samson is a picture of Israel, at least what they are spiritually. Right? Just as the author of Judges will, will say uh, later on in the, in, in the book, Samson does what is right in his own eyes. He sees what he wants, he desires it, and he pursues it. He does what feels good without regard to what actually is good in the sight of God. Now, you have to remember that Samson, he lived in ancient times. There's no 24-hour news cycle back in those days. There probably aren't a lot of people who know who Samson is, what he looks like. But there was someone who knew. Right, verse 2 demonstrates that because someone told the Gazites, Samson has come here to our city. And so knowing what a threat Samson posed to them, the Gazites, they surrounded the harlot's house. And they lay in wait for him silently all night at the gate of the city, supposing that they can wait to kill Samson when he tries to get up and leave in the next morning. And, and what they and the, the word here that... Um, they kept silent all night long, all night saying, uh, let us wait. They were saying that to themselves. They were whispering that to themselves. They're, not, they're trying to be really sneaky. They're, they're trying to make sure that it's absolutely quiet, absolutely still, so that Samson doesn't get the idea that something's, uh, something's going on. And what happens next is absolutely astonishing. Samson, he just gets up at midnight, and he leaves the harlot's house. He's getting ready to leave the city, and you know, we don't know why he does that. We don't know why. He just gets up and he's like, you know, I'm going to go. And, you know, these men, it doesn't say it specifically, but these men who are laying in wait for Samson as a lion lays in wait for a gazelle, they're laying in wait for him and they fall asleep. It doesn't say that specifically right here, but we do know that they, they, they fell asleep. They, they fell asleep. They're fast asleep because they were assuming that Samson was going to stay longer. And if it were not for the Lord allowing Samson to wake up and leave the city when he did, Samson probably would have had to fight his way out of the city. Right? Instead, he simply just walks straight out through this mass of sleeping would-be assassins. Now, Samson, he sees these men surrounding the harlot's place and laying at wait at the city gates. And while he doesn't kill them as they're sleeping in their vulnerable position, he knows why they're there. And so Samson takes hold of the, uh, of the doors of the city, the posts that hold the doors up and the bars that, holds, that, that closes them, that locks them. Right? And he carries them out of the city to the top of the mountain opposite Hebron. And here are a couple of notes, things to note as we observe what just happened. First, God allows for all these people who had murderous intent to fall asleep while they were waiting to kill Samson, including the watchmen of the city. Each city, each walled city had at least six guards, six watchmen, who stood at the gates, who were watching constantly outside the city to make sure that the city was protected, that no enemies were going to come and attack them in the middle of the night. If they were awake, when Samson woke up, got up out of the city and grabbed the doors and just walked out, they probably would have said something if they saw it, right? That was their job. Not a sound, not a warning. They were fast asleep. The fact that you know, Samson was able to get up and go out of the city, no less, uh, and no less put the gates on his back, 
right? It, it just really shows how deep asleep they were. And you imagine that. Those gates are heavy, right? They're, metal, they're often covered with metal. They're probably going to, you know, you can't even close one of these doors without making some sort of rattling sound. He grabs the gates, and he just walks off with them, right? These people are fast asleep, and that's the Lord's doing. And that allows for Samson to get away. But secondly, we see that Samson's strength can be attributed to no one other than the Lord as he takes hold of these heavy city gates and he carries them up to the top of the mountain opposite uh, Hebron. City gates at the time of Samson's life were estimated to weigh anywhere from three to ten tons. Some scholars believe that the Gaza gates gates were probably in the five to ten ton range. One ton is... 2,000 pounds. So at its lightest, this gate was 10,000 pounds. At most, it was 20,000 pounds. The strongest man at this church can't even lift that much. And you know who I'm talking about. And he looks good, right? But whatever, whatever the case, right? Whatever the case, Samson's feat of strength is all through the power of God. It's all through the power of God. He puts at least 10,000 pounds on his back. And he just walks right out of the city. Right? But not only that, if that's not enough, right? No, no, if that's not enough. Samson also travels anywhere from 30 to 40 miles with a change of elevation over 3,000 feet up, not down, okay? 3,000 feet up. And then he just plants the gates, the city gates, and the doorposts, and the bars onto the hill that overlooks Hebron. That's, you can't do that. That's not humanly possible, except for if God enabled you to do it. But that change in elevation, just for reference, is the same as if you uh, climbed Mount Tampapias and then went up another 500 feet. And that's how high Samson went with these gates. And it seems like he just did that for no reason, right? He just felt like it, so he just went and did it. Um, But there there is a point to this. There is a point to this. Because by taking the city gates, he leaves the entire city of Gaza completely wide open for attack, yeah? He exposes them. He humiliates them. They were all waiting in late, they were all laying in wait for him, trying to kill him, and he slips out right from under their noses, and he takes their gate with him, just for good measure. So what we see is that even though God does not approve of Samson's sexual immorality, he delivers Samson from his own foolishness, walking into Gaza, hiring a prostitute, and choosing to stay there, knowing that he's enemy number one. Samson's a fool. Why would you do that if you knew that you were, if you were enemy number one? Right, so he's foolish in that. But God delivers him from that foolishness and allows uh, Samson at the same time to put the Philistines on notice. God could have allowed for Samson to die at the hands of the Philistines at this time just as a consequence of, uh, of Samson's disobedience and irreverence. But he still has plans for Samson, which is why he allows for Samson to live and escape. And though Samson probably thought it was through his own strength and ability that he escaped the Philistines, we know that it's because of God. Right? And so in order to send an appropriate message to the Philistines and to the Israelites, God needs the threat of Samson's presence to continue to grow. And he works it so that it does. And by taking the, those gates away, right, Samson is letting Israel know and Gaza know that God is doing something, that Samson is a threat. Right? He's a threat to the Philistines, but he's also kind of a hero 
for the Israelites. It's like, oh, yeah, cool. You stole their gate. How did you do that? Right? And it's with, uh, and, and for the Philistines, they have to be thinking of this in the back of their mind. If Samson can carry these heavy city gates away from our home, march it all the way up to the top of another hill, what else can he do? What else can he do? We already know that he just ripped a, 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 a jawbone straight off of a donkey and killed a thousand people. What else can he do? That's a scary thought, right? That's a haunting thought. And the Gazites and the rest of the Philistines knew that they needed to do something about Samson, lest Samson destroy them all. Right? Not only has he killed their, their, um, their, their kinsmen in remarkable feats of strength, but he also single-handedly exposed and left vulnerable one of their cities, and they didn't even know what was happening. Now, obviously, God is not mentioned in these first three verses, but his presence and his hand cannot be missed, right? No muscle-bound individual can do what he did, no less for how long he did it. That's this strength that Samson has, uh, had and displayed was a result of God being with him, despite the fact that Samson was a great sinner. Now, remember, the sin cycles that we have found in Judges. Israel would be in sin, or, oh, they did good, right? But Israel would be in sin, then they get punished, then they ask God for help, and God sends them a judge, and then they're saved. What we see here is that we're in this cycle again, right? From Samson's birth up until now, God is raising up his deliverer, right? The judge is being raised up after Israel asks for help. And this deliverer, though he is strong and though he is certainly capable of delivering Israel, he has some problems. Right? He has some problems. And that, that deliverance is going to come soon enough, but the stage needs to be set to deal with those problems. God's behind it all. Right? He's setting the scene. He's setting the stage up for what we're going to see. And we see it through the chaos and the sin. Now, as God sets the stage for the final showdown, before that happens, this deliverer needs to be humbled. And so we'll see that in the second evidence of God's providence in Samson's flawed life that helps us trust God more. And that's that is, God does not abandon Samson. God does not abandon Samson. Verse 4. After this, it came about that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. The lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Entice him and see where his great strength lies and how we may overpower him, that we may bind him to afflict him. Then we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So sometime after um, his escapades in Gaza, Samson fell in love with a woman who lived in the Valley of Sorek, which is, if you look at the maps that are in the back of your Bibles, um, if you have maps, a valley that served as a crossover point between is Israel and Philistine territory. Essentially, we're brought right at the north northmost city of the five cities which make up Philistine territory. There are five cities, so it's a uh, Pentatopolis, or yeah, Pentatopolis, if you want to think of, of, of it that way, right? And so there are five cities that make up Philistine. This is the northernmost one. And something that's worth noting here is that in this zone, in between Israel and Philistine territory, Samson falls in love with a woman. When we don't know whether she was a Philistine or not, right? But he falls in love with Delilah. That's something that is noteworthy because even in his previous marriage to the Timnite woman, Samson wasn't described as loving her. He just says, I saw a woman, go get her for me. Right? He certainly was not described as loving the harlot. This is the first time that Samson has actually fallen in love with someone. It's different. 
And this difference is going to be used against him in a mighty way. Now, we know that Delilah, uh, we, we have no idea you know, who, who she is and what else she, she does, except for the fact that she is his lover and that she betrays Samson. Right? Some have said that she too was a harlot, but there's little evidence to that. A few Jewish scholars have ventured to say that uh, Delilah was Samson's wife, but there's even fewer evidences to support that claim. So what we do see in the text is that these two are lovers who are living together, but they're unmarried. It's something that wasn't really accepted then, but it occurred, and um, we, we see that with the, uh, the woman at the well who Jesus talks to. Um, so it is a practice that was, was done. Now, the, the, Phil, the, Lord, the Lord of the Philistines, the five leaders who rule over each one of these cities, uh, they discovered Samson's love for Delilah. And they asked her to entice Samson and to see where his great strength comes from so they might overpower him. Basically to arrest him. They wanted to arrest him and they also wanted to hurt him. Now, the Philistines, they recognized that Samson's strength was not normal. If you saw someone who was really buffed, you wouldn't be asking, hey, where does your strength come from? Right? It's really clear. It's really obvious. It's his muscles. Right? But Samson possibly, possibly, mind you, uh, did not have the ripped physique that we thought he had. He probably looked pretty normal. Probably fit, but not extraordinarily ripped. Not extraordinarily, extraordinarily muscular. We don't really know what he looked like, but the fact that they were saying, where does his great strength come from? It probably suggests that he looked normal, that you could just pick him out of a crowd in a sense. Right? Uh, but regardless, regardless of whether Samson looked like one of us or whether he had a body worthy of a bodybuilding competition, the Philistines recognized that there's no way, or there is no way that this strength comes from Samson alone. And so that's why they want Delilah to go up to her lover and ask him where he got his power from. And their desperation to rid themselves of Samson due to the great trouble and pain that he brought on them was vast. Each of the Lord of the Philistines offered her 1,100 pieces of silver each. There's five of them. They offered her 1,100 pieces each just to find the secret to his strength so that they could hurt him. That's a grand total of 5,500 pieces of silver. Now, the exact value of their offer in modern money is difficult to calculate because, you know, as you know, the, um, the value of, of money changes. Or even now, I, looked up, I was just curious. I looked up the, the value of silver today, and it had gone down today compared to yesterday. So it, it fluctuates, right? But uh, it's, it was a lot. And um, scholars, uh, were, um, scholars are s- suggesting that the modern equivalent to 5,500 pieces of silver is approaching $15 million. For reference, that's how much the Giants are paying their starting shortstop for a year. Right? That's a lot of money. Now, with this promise of vast riches in tow, uh, Delilah doesn't say, no. I'm going to stick it for my man. I love him. I'm going, to, I'm going to stay with him. She's like, okay, give me the money. Let's go. Right? And it's really fascinating. When you look at it, when you look at it in verse 6, she's not sly about how she asks Samson for, for the secret. She just says, please tell me where your great strength is and how you may be bound to afflict, afflict you. She's like, well, that's direct. Right? She's just like, hey, how can I, uh, how can I tie you up and uh, hurt you? Well, of course, we don't know what kind of tone she used as she was speaking to Samson, but if that isn't a red flag, I don't know what is. 
right? It'd be similar to, to a husband or a wife asking the spouse, hey, how much does the uh, life insurance pay out if you died unexpectedly? Right? It's just like, um, why? <laughs> why do you want to know? I don't want to tell you. Um, right? And, and yeah, it, it's, just, it's just so strange that she just asks him directly, and he doesn't respond. He's, I mean, he, he doesn't respond with suspicion. He responds, but he's not suspicious at all. Right? I, I don't know. Maybe he was just thinking that it was just fun flirting or, um, or whatever, but he's just like, oh, well, yeah, sure, I'll give you an answer. And he, he says, if she binds him with seven fresh cords that have not been dried, then he'll become weak and become like any other man. And that, that, that's important for us to, to recognize because uh, Samson, he does acknowledge that his strength comes from somewhere else. Right? So he knows that. And so he tells her, oh, you just bind me with these seven cords and I will lose my strength. Now, it's not the truth because Samson is fully aware, as we'll see later, that he's been set aside as a Nazarite from birth. Yet, even though he knows that he's supposed to be different, he willingly allows himself to be defiled by something unclean yet again. He's shown a previous disregard for keeping ceremonially clean as he ripped apart the lion that tried to kill him. Um, Yeah, the lion attacked him, and he just ripped the lion to pieces. And then later on, when he came back to the lion's uh, corpse, he saw that there was honey inside. Some bees had made a little nest inside the lion. And so he went into the lion's corpse. You wouldn't even do that, right? You wouldn't go... Oh, look, there's, a, there's an animal with its guts exposed. Let me put my hand in there and go grab something. Right? I don't even think you would do that for a dollar. Um, but he goes in there. He's like, oh, honey, cool. And he grabs the honey out from the lion's carcass, and then he eats it. Right? And, then he, and not only that, but then he's like, hey, mom, dad, you want some honey? Right? And then they're, they're eating it too. Right? So he's defiled himself in those ways. He's also defiled himself when he takes that jawbone off of a donkey that just died, which is actually also really significant because you know if the donkey had been in decay for a little while, and he went down there and he ripped the jawbone off, you're kind of like, well, the donkey was in decay. That's not, you know, that's not something that's really uh, remarkable. You could do that off of anything that was decaying. Right? But he took, it, he took the jaw straight off a freshly killed donkey. That's really hard to do. And so, I mean, he just like, rip, and he just killed a thousand people. Right? He's, he showed that he has a disregard for, t- for keeping himself clean, keeping himself pure. And this time, it's no different, right? The cords that he says that he needs to be tied by, um, these fresh cords, they are fresh animal tendons, which will eventually be dried in order to string bowstrings and possibly even tent cords. And while they might seem weird to you, um, there are some animal guts that are used to string musical instruments. And up until the time uh, before synthetic strings were were created, even tennis rackets. Right? So you have cat gut rackets and cat gut guitar strings and whatnot. Um, they're not really cats. It's like goats and stuff, but I don't know. They call them cat guts. Uh, PETA has this whole thing about it. It was fascinating. Um, but, uh, but he allows for himself to be touched by these fresh tendons. Right? He is supposed to be a Nazarite. He's supposed to be set apart to be pure, to be clean. And he's like, go ahead, just wrap some tendons on me. He has no regard at all for God's standard. And so what we see is the Philistine lords, they're like, really? That's it? All right, here. They give give Delilah these cords, and when Samson's asleep, she binds him. And she has Philistines hiding in their shared house. 
waiting to see if this thing works. Hey, let's, let's arrest him right now. I need my money, right? I need my 15 million. Well, she wouldn't have said 15 million, but you know, uh, 5,500 5, pieces of silver. I need that, right? So she has them waiting because she wants her, she wants to get paid. Right? She's ready to turn him over to the Philistines, working hard not just to extract the secret of his strength, but also to have him detained. And so uh, even though Delilah and the Philistines were ready to take advantage, when she yells out and says, Samson, the Philistines are upon you, he gets up and he just rips them straight off. Kind of like if there was fire on it and there's like nothing, it was nothing. It didn't sap his strength at all. And so Delilah confronts Samson with his lie in verse 10. And again, she is really direct with his uh, with her question, and she says, um, Behold, you have deceived me and told me lies. Now please tell me how you may be bound. Samson, he can hear what's coming out of her mouth. Right? He knows what she just tried to do. She was testing him. So he knows that. And he tells her again, Oh, well, if you really want to bind me, why don't you get some fresh ropes and tie me up with them? Right? Samson previously had acted as if he was far wiser than everybody else. He asked them impossible riddles, and he was trying to prove to everybody else that he is not only the strongest, but he's the smartest. Right? But in, what, in his response to Delilah, he proves he's not wiser than everybody else. He's a fool. Right? He's a fool because he hears her request. He knows what she's trying to do. She, he knows that she's trying to expose his weaknesses so that she can get him vulnerable. And he's like, oh, yeah, sure. You want to know how to make me weak? Here's how you do it. He's a fool. He's not smart at all. He's playing with fire. And he continues to play with her. And so Delilah, again, puts it to the test. Wraps him up in the ropes while he's sleeping. Says, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he wakes up and just snaps them off. It's like a loose thread off your clothes. He just snap. All, right, all done. And then she, she's getting frustrated now. Right? He's deceived her yet again. And so this time, she, she uh, gets rid of the polite request, and she demands to know how Samson is bound. And God just allows for his foolishness to continue. Right? She says in verse 13, Up to now, You've deceived me and told me lies. Tell me how you may be bound. Right? She's not hiding it. Okay? She is not hiding it whatsoever. Tell me how you may be bound. He's like, okay. And he gets a little closer to, to, um, to what eventually will, will take him down. And he says to her, well, if you take my hair and you weave it, inter- you interweave it into the, the loom that you have in your home and you, you uh, pin it in there, I'll lose my strength. And she tries again, only to be frustrated as when she springs the trap once again, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He gets up and he just like pulls his hair out of the pin. And he's like, what? What happened? Right. So again, she's frustrated. And, and this, this frustration is mounting for her. She has a lot of money on the line, right? Delilah has a lot of money on the line. Samson is not cooperating whatsoever. And so she escalates it. And she pulls the love card. She pulls the love card. And instead of just confronting him on his, on his deception again, she says, how can you say, Samson, Samson, how can you say that you love me? How can you say, I love you when your heart is not with me? You've deceived me these three times, and you've not told me where your great strength is. 
Right? For someone who is driven by his feelings like Samson is, those words sting. Right? That hurts. Right? If, if you told someone, if you told a family member or a significant other that you love them, and they come up to you and they say, how can you say I love you to me when you don't do what I ask you? You're just like, whoa, haven't I proved to you this whole time that I loved you? I've said it to you. I've probably done the dishes maybe at least once this past week. Um, this is not what's going on in my house. But um, right? it's just like, whoa, whoa, how can you doubt the fact that I love you? I've proven it, haven't I? Or how dare you? That's not cool. That hurts. And he and Delilah have clearly told, the, told each other that they love one another. And now she uses his words against him and says, look, you don't love me. You say you do. But I've asked you to tell me the, where, where your strength comes from. And you haven't told me. You don't love me. And so, you know, him being a guy, he's probably like, yeah, whatever. He just like walks away. Um, but and we get that from verse 16. Because... It says in verse 16, it came about when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him that his soul was annoyed to death. He didn't give it up immediately, but she continued to press him, saying, you don't love me. You better tell me what your secret is. He's like, no, no, no. And she just keeps asking. She keeps asking to the point where uh, Samson is described as saying that his soul was annoyed to death, or it was impatient to the point of death. And there's a great bit of foreshadowing that's there too. He was annoyed to the point of death, so he told her his secret, which will eventually lead to his actual death. Delilah leans in. She continues to pester Samson, and he just gives in. And what we'll see in verse 17 is that Samson knows that, that his power comes from God. He says, a razor has never come on my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I will become weak and be like any other man. So Samson knows that his strength comes from God, that he was a Nazarite. So he tells her the truth. He reveals her, to her all that was in his heart, right? Because he's trying to prove to her, I love you, okay? I love you. Here's the proof. I'll tell you my secret. I love you. Would you stop bothering me about my secret. And Delilah sees that she's finally broken his will. Right? And she alerts the lords of the Philistines and she says, hey, come. Come again this time. For reals, though. Right? Because he told me what was in his heart. And so they come up to her home, in verse 18, with money in hand. And Delilah, she lures Samson asleep on her knees. Right? If that reminds you of something, it should remind you of how Sisera was lured to sleep on the knees of Jair. Right? And we mentioned back then that when you lure someone to sleep on your knees, that's kind of like what a parent would have done to their child as they're trying to soothe their child to sleep. Right? So she puts him in this position as if she was a mother trying to calm her child down. And then as she, he's in this position. He ha, she has a professional barber come in to shave off his, his, all of his hair while he's sleeping. And then she yells, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And look at the arrogance in Samson's mind. He says, verse 20, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Samson had disregard for his special status as one dedicated to the service of God. And that's apparent. 
He knows what made him special as a Nazarite. He knew that his hair was that symbol, but he didn't care. Right? We've seen that his disregard for his status as a Nazarite didn't stop him from touching unclean animals. It didn't stop him from engaging in sexual immorality. And so it didn't stop him from having a disregard to God's word as a whole. And so knowing that Delilah in the past has tried to test the truthfulness of his word, he's just thinking, oh, nothing's going to happen. It's just going to be silly. I'm going to wake up. We're going to have a good laugh about it, and then we're going to go back to sleep. That's not true. Right? This time it's different. This time, he has no power. He can't get himself free. You know, Samson might have thought that his power came from his hair, but he also understood, he also knew that his strength was not found in his hair. Otherwise, he really wouldn't have let Delilah near his hair. But his complete and utter disregard for God's call for him to be a Nazarite and what that meant in terms of his lifestyle led him to believe that it didn't matter how he conducted himself. It didn't matter what he did. He could break the Nazarite vow as often as he wanted to because God was the one who powered him up. Right? So he didn't believe that the power was in his hair. And the author of Judges makes that clear too because um, he shows in other passages that it was the Spirit of the Lord who came upon Samson to strengthen him. And also, if you think about it, too, if the power was in the hair, why wasn't John the Baptist running around the desert as a Nazarite ripping things to shreds? Right? How, I mean, what, what other uh, greater show of the kingdom of God is coming than, I'm just going to rip things to shreds. I'm just going to show you how strong I am. The kingdom's coming. You print, or I'll rip you to shreds. Right? He could have done that, but he didn't. Being a Nazarite does not mean that you have supernatural power. The hair is merely a symbol of, of Samson's commitment to God as a Nazarite from birth. And by shaving off that hair, he shows he has utter and complete disregard for God, that he doesn't care to be uh, associated with God anymore. The author of Judges makes it clear uh, like I said earlier, the Spirit of the Lord was the one who came upon Samson, allowed him to perform these acts of great strength. When Samson was born, it said that the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit was stirring in him, moving him along. Right? And then when he fought the lion, um, when he fought the lion, that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson, and then he tore that lion apart. Um, later on, when he had to fight the um, when he had to fight the Philistines, right? It says again. The, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson and enabled him to have the strength to fight all these men and live. Samson's great power did not necessarily come from his hair, but it came from God. His hair was merely a symbol of how he was supposed to be set apart. And for this reason, Samson wakes up with arrogance in his heart, thinking that he's going to be able to deliver himself just as in times past. But he can't, because God left him. Right? Samson didn't care to continue to visually be identified with God. And with the stage set, God allows Samson to be captured by the Philistines. And he will not allow for himself to be identified with Samson, at least right now. And that's poetic justice in the cruelty that was shown to Samson. Samson was a man who was driven by his vision, right? driven by his sight, the lust of his eyes. When the Philistines got a hold of Samson and they were able to make him weak, they treated him like they would any other prisoner. They gouged out his eyes so he couldn't see, couldn't run away. Right? It sounds painful, icky. 
And then they brought him in chains to Gaza, and they put him in the prison, and they had him grind flour. They had him grind flour, which was something that uh, was commonly, which was work that was commonly reserved for women in ancient days. So what they're doing to Samson is they're essentially saying, you're going to be useless. You were once strong, now you're going to be weak. And you're not even going to be able to see, and you're also going to do women's work. You're not a man anymore. We've emasculated you. You have no power. That's what they're doing. And so things look really dark for Samson. And yet, this was all according to God's plans. We've seen in scriptures, especially in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, that God made promises to be with his people if they diligently obey God. And if they did not, consequences would follow. And it's for that reason that children were called to obey their parents in the Ten Commandments. They weren't called to obey their parents in the Ten Commandments simply because God said so, although that should be reason enough to obey and honor parents. But they, children are supposed to learn to obey and honor parents because learning to obey mom and dad is supposed to teach us how to honor God. Right? If you can learn how to honor mom and dad, you can definitely learn how to honor God. And that's confirmed in Hebrews 12 when the author of Hebrews reminds his readers of Solomon's warning in Proverbs 3 not to regard lightly the discipline of the Lord because the Lord loves those he disciplines. And that's how you know you're his. That's how you know you're a legitimate son of God. You're not illegitimate. You're legitimate because he disciplines you when you sin. He allows for you to experience the consequences of your sin. That's how you know you're his. And so this is what God allows for Samson to experience. He allows for Samson to experience discipline because Samson's his. Samson has sinned, and Samson needs to recognize what he's done wrong. God accomplishes two things with Samson's humiliation. One, he helps Samson realize that this entire thing, this being a judge thing, was never about Samson himself, but it was always about God. It was always supposed to be about God's glory. Samson had grown prideful over his accomplishments, not recognizing that it was from God. So that's why Samson needed to be humbled so he could repent. Number two, God allows for Samson to experience the consequences of his disobedience to accomplish the grander plan. It moves Samson into the perfect position to serve God as a deliverer, which we'll see later. But basically, God moved the chess pieces. He moved Samson into the right place for the right time. But now, for now, turn your attention to verse 22. It looks that things are bleak. Samson has been blinded and is imprisoned. But even in his miserable condition, after he was betrayed by his lover and mutilated, there is a bit of hope. There's a bit of hair that is growing back on Samson's head. Again, this is not to tell us that the source of Samson's great strength came from his hair, but it's to remind us that though Samson did not care much about what it meant to represent God, God did not forget Samson, even though he allowed for Samson to experience discipline, which is why he allows for Samson's hair to grow back out. Brothers and sisters, if you have sinned against God and you are experiencing are experiencing the rightful consequences of your actions. You have to remember that that's not to be despised. If you, if you did something wrong and you experienced the consequences for that, that's what's right. That's what's expected. Right? But the discipline is not forever. It might seem that way. It might feel that way, but it's not forever. 
It's meant to remind you that you need to repent of your sins and be restored to the Lord. That's why God allows for you to feel guilty, to let you know that there's something not right within you and that you need to turn to the Lord. Right? He allows for you to experience the consequences of your disobedience, not because he's a cruel person who loves to make you miserable, but he needs you to know and recognize what you are doing is not right. And even if you know that, sometimes we just do it anyway, right? And that's why God allows for us to experience the consequences of our actions. Right? If you sin against God, there are consequences. If you sin against people, there are consequences. You can't just walk into Costco, steal something, and expect to be able to go back to Costco for the rest of your life. Right? They're going to ban you. There are consequences. There are rightful consequences. Right? And some of these consequences might change the way that your, uh, your life looks for the rest of your life, right? For instance, when Samson repents, he doesn't all of a sudden regenerate new eyes, right? His eyes are gone. So he has to experience the consequences of that, right? But God doesn't abandon him fully. We're going to see that soon, right? When he disciplines us, yeah, it hurts for a moment. It's not going to last forever. We're going to see that that's true in our third evidence of God's providence in Samson's flawed life as God avenges Samson. God avenges Samson. So the, Lord, the lords of the Philistines are naturally extremely happy that they were able to capture the great Samson. So they throw a great party in verse 23 to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon and to rejoice. Now the Philistines, they believe that their God has triumphed over Samson. And the God of Israel, Yahweh, and so they say, hey, we won. We won. We beat Samson and his God. So let's throw a party. Let's throw a sacrifice. So give thanks to our God for what he's done for us. And they say in verse 24, our God has given our enemy into our hands, even the destroyer of our country who has slain many of us. These Philistines are no dummies. Right? They've seen the damage that Samson can do. They, they knew that if they couldn't depower Samson, especially after all that he's done, they were surely going to die. That's why they had that very expensive effort to get Samson into their hands. And in an effort to demonstrate their God's superiority over Samson, the Philistines, once they're all drunk, they call for Samson and say, Hey, bring in Samson. I want to be entertained. As if gouging out his eyes and imprisoning him was not enough. They wanted to utterly humiliate Samson, putting him on display so that everyone can see, hey, you see Yahweh's champion, Samson? He was supposed to be really powerful. He killed so many of us, but look at him now. It's useless, being led by the hand by a young boy. Can't even see, can't even walk on his own. See how Dagon has brought low Samson. That's what they wanted to do. That's what they wanted to show. And believing that he was completely powerless and completely subdued, they brought Samson into the party. They brought him into the middle of the room where the support pillars are. And they just had him hanging out there so that they could watch him and laugh at him. Now, the author tells us that this was a house. But we're probably talking about a house of worship rather than someone's actual house. Because he, also, he says that they were there to offer sacrifice to Dagon. And then he later says that there are about 3,000 men and women on the roof looking on Samson while he was amusing them which could mean that there were more people downstairs around Samson. Right? It's unclear whether there were other people down there, but there was at least 3,000 on the roof gawking at Samson, saying, ah, oh, look at you, powerless, useless, 
And it's at that point, it's at that point when Samson is brought up to the pillars that Samson cries out to the Lord, and that is significant. Because up until this point, he, had, he wanted nothing to do with God. He didn't acknowledge God, really. He just said, I'm a Nazarite to God. And that's all he said. Now, up until this point, right, we haven't seen a true acknowledgement of God from him. And this prayer isn't really the greatest model of faith. But Samson demonstrates his imperfect faith here as he calls out to God and he says, and he asks God to remember him. Right? He says, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me just this time, O God, that I may at once be avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. Again, not the greatest picture of someone who is repenting and placing their faith in Christ. Um, still a little selfish, right? But God can still use that. Um, and, you know, God, he answers this request that Samson gives him. Why, why, does, why does God answer this prayer? It's not because Samson uh, did not deserve what happened to him. For Samson clearly did not care about God in his living before. But it's purely through the mercy and grace of God that God grants Samson his request. He's not given up on Samson yet. And in a greater way, he's not given on, up on his people. Remember where we're at in the sin cycle of Israel. God has raised up the deliverer. And it looks like the cycle is going to break. Because the deliverer has been raised up. And he hasn't brought deliverance on the people yet. He doesn't have his eyes, and he's in prison. That's not good. But what we recognize here is that God's not done. And while God does not condone the sins of his deliverer, he doesn't abandon his deliverer. Instead, like I said earlier, he moves Samson into the exact position that he needed Samson to be in in order to provide a serious blow to the Philistines and provide the deliverance that his people needed. God did this all intentionally. He allowed for Samson's depravity to push him into the hands of the Philistines so that he could use that depravity to judge Israel. I'm sorry, to judge the Philistines and deliver Israel. Now we know that the Philistines will not be put to an end here through Samson's judgment, but God makes a clear statement to all who will eventually hear of what happened to the Philistines at the hands of Samson. Right? People are going to hear about this. When you have 3,000 people at a party and they all die, you're going to hear about this, right? And what the message was is this. Dagon did not actually prevail over Yahweh, right? Yahweh sent a deliverer into the heart of Dagon's house, right? He's on Dagon's turf, and he took out Dagon and all of his worshipers, demonstrating that Yahweh, not Dagon, is superior, Yahweh is the only one capable of truly delivering his people. And he demonstrates that clearly through empowering Samson just one more time to provide deliverance. And that redemption comes as Samson braces himself against those two pillars. Just like this, right? One on the right hand, one on the left hand, and he just flexes, right? He squeezes with all his might. And as he does that, the pillars crumble. And the whole house, because those are the support pillars, the whole house falls in. And so he dies. Samson dies. There's no way he survives that. But in doing that, right, he killed more Philistines than he did when he was alive. God avenges Samson and allows Samson to bring a punishing, if not crippling, blow to the Philistines. Now, this is a great party. 
all five lords of the Philistines are there. They're not going to invite the poor people, right? They're inviting their friends. They're inviting all the important people, the, ar- the army generals and, and, and whatnot, right? They're inviting all the important people, 3,000 of them. And God wipes them all out with one blow. And that probably puts the Philistines' successes back for quite a while. That reminds us of something. For those of you who are here this evening and you've not yet placed your faith in Christ, you've not turned away from your sins, this should be a humbling warning to you. These revelers, they didn't know that this was going to be their last night on earth, or this was going to be their last moments on earth. They thought they were going to go celebrate how great their God was. They thought they had won. They didn't know that their God was nothing. That the one true God is something and that he actually will judge them for their sins. He will call them into account for their actions. 3,000 people died, yes. None of them were innocent. They're all sinners before God. They all got the just punishment for their sins. So don't play the game of, but how could God do that? Weren't there innocent people there? No! They're all sinners. Just like you and I. I'm sorry, you and me. We're all sinners. If we die before we place our faith in Christ, God would be absolutely right in taking our lives because we're sinners. He would be absolutely right in doing that. And yet, by his great mercy, he did not do that. He was patient towards us. And he showed us mercy, gave us grace so that we could believe when we heard the message and that we could respond in saving faith. That's what God does. God loved you so much that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for your, on your behalf so that when you believe in Jesus and you turn away from your sins, you leave it all behind, you might be saved. And while you might think that you have time to believe in Jesus later. You might think that you have time to act like a Christian later. This is a humbling warning. You don't know when your time is up. You don't know when God's going to say, that's it, that's enough. You're done. So if you're here this evening, even if you've heard the gospel a thousand times because you grew up in church, Consider whether you actually have saving faith in Jesus Christ. Or is it all a show? You don't fool me. You certainly, I mean, you can fool me, right? Sorry, flip that around. You can fool me. I can think you're saved, right? You can say all those Christianese words. I love Jesus. I prayed for forgiveness for my sins. I've heard it all. You all have heard it all. You can fake it. And you might even make it, at least in our eyes. God's not fooled. God knows your heart. And he knows whether you love something else other, more than you love him. He knows whether you actually have truly repented of your sins and whether you want to leave it all behind or whether you actually have the idol of work, money, whatever, set up higher than God. He knows that. You can't fake him out. He's not deceived. And so, because of his great love you. He offers that mercy, that salvation to you if you would just believe and leave your sins behind. He's willing to forgive it. He will forgive it. Will you believe? I beg you to believe. Stop thinking that you're saved just because you come to church. Coming to church means nothing in that sense, in the salvation sense. 
Just because you're here doesn't mean you're safe. Do you love God? That's what matters. If you love him, you're fine. Even if you struggle, you're okay. But if you do not love him, you can't say you love him more than you love anything else in your life. You have good reason, good reason not to be comfortable in your profession of faith. You have good reason to doubt, and I'm not going to coddle to you. And I'm not going to tell you, oh, it's okay, you're fine. No, I won't tell you that. I refuse to tell you that. I refuse to tell you that. If you do not love God, you have good reason to wonder whether you're actually saved. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm trying to speak the truth to you in love and firmly so that you understand that just because you've come here, just because you've heard the gospel all your life, doesn't mean that you're saved. If you don't love God, you have good reason to wonder, to struggle with doubt. But the good news is God grants you grace, yes? God loves you, and that he continues to offer out that mercy and that grace that he didn't take you home before we actually found out whether you were saved or not, right? Praise God for that. What a great God we have. Now, for those of you who are here this evening who are saved, this does serve as a reminder for us as well that God truly is not mocked, right? He is sovereignly working through all the events in our, in our lives to accomplish his work in our, in our lives, People will have to pay the punishment for their sins if they're not saved. Or so if you experience injustice at the hands of someone who is unjust, who is unrighteous, they won't get away with it for long. God will take care of them. God will take care of them. And some of the things that you go through in life, it's not meaningless. It's not, it's not as if God didn't know what was going to happen to you. When Samson had his eyes gouged out and he was working as a grinder in the prison, he didn't know. He had no clue that God was going to use him to bring judgment upon the Philistines. For all Samson knew, this was it. This is the end of the line. No eyes in prison, all alone. Probably just going to die there. That's probably all that he knew, all that he thought was going to happen. What he didn't know, nor did we at the time know, was that God put him there for a purpose. To humble him. And after he saved him, to use him to deliver the nation of Israel from the Philistines so that even in death, Samson would glorify God. Now, the end of Samson's account leaves it a little ambiguous as to whether Samson actually repented of his sin um, or not. All we know is that God graciously answered Samson's prayer to judge the Philistines. It doesn't necessarily mean that he graciously saved Samson. Right? And we also know that Samson's family were able to go get his body and bring it back and bury it in the family tomb. But what we do know in Hebrews 11, 32 to 34, the author of Hebrews gives us a little more insight because he, writing through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, names Samson, along with Jephthah, even Jephthah, ungodly Jephthah, um, and Gideon, faithless Gideon, as one of the faithful men through whom God did great things in the world. These men ended up in the hall of faith not because... um, they were just Bible characters, right? But because they actually had faith, even if in the book of Judges it didn't look like they did. And so as we have seen throughout our study in Judges, God can accomplish his purposes to save people and set the stage uh, to reveal his ultimate plan, his ultimate salvation plan to save people through Jesus Christ. And he does that through imperfect people. The whole genealogy of Jesus, whether you look at it from Luke or, or Matthew, 
It's just a bunch of sinners all the way down, right? And one of the worst ones was David. And he's, he's Jesus' descendant that Jesus is supposed to be the, the ultimate one of, right? He's the ultimate David. Many of these biblical heroes that we learn of at church are tremendously flawed people. And that's why we need a greater Savior. Someone who's not just human, but someone who's also God to come deliver us from our sins. And we have that in Jesus Christ. He has made a way for us to be delivered completely from our sins because he, being perfectly God, perfectly man, came, lived the perfect life that we could not live, died on the cross on our behalf so that he could be the bridge, so that he could be the umpire who puts his hand on man, puts hand on God, and brings the two together as Job wished for in Job 9. He did that. Jesus did that. He brought peace, mediated peace through his life and death and resurrection. And because of that, we can have absolute confidence that we're going to be in heaven with God, worshiping him in our resurrected bodies, our sinless bodies, able to see the true king in his beauty, in all of his glory, just as we should have before sin entered into the world. Entering into the 2012 baseball season, the Giants fans, we once looked at this hippie from Oakland named Barry Zito, and we thought, he is going to be the one who makes us relevant again. He's going to bring us back into relevancy after Barry Bonds retires. But when he got here, he was washed up. He looked like a bust. We paid him a lot of money for seven years. He was bad. We just wanted him off the team because he was he was a bust. Right? How could he play a part in this Giants team to get, him, get us back into the World Series? And somehow the Giants did with Zito in tow. And they made it to the semifinal round of the playoffs. And they were in danger of being eliminated by the St. Louis Cardinals. And to Giants fans dismayed, we heard Bruce Bochy say, game five starter is going to be Barry Zito. And every Giants fan was saying, oh, man, well, I'll see you next year. We're going to lose. It's going to be awful. Right? This is the end. No more World Series. We just thought that Zito was going to let us down because Zito was a bust. Right? Zito was a bust. But Zito surprised us. He gave us a heart attack, but he surpri- surprised us. Right? He helped us stave off elimination. And then in the World Series, he won game one against the Cy Young winner from the AL the guy who just threw a perfect game last week. But the bus did that. The bus did that. And in those, two, in those two starts, Barry Zito, the bust, earned the entire value of his paycheck. Right? Every Giants fan now, when we think of Zito, we're just like, I'm sure thankful for Zito, because otherwise we don't get that World Series. Right? We, well, who, someone who was once a bust is now a hero for Giants fans. Entering into this evening... As we've studied Samson the last two weeks, we look at Samson, we're just like, man, he is going to bust, and he's going to bust bad. He is useless. He is worthless. Oh, man, our hands are, our, 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 our salvation plan is in the hands of Samson? Oh, my gosh. This is not good. He had plenty of potential to bring glory to God, but he didn't because of his sinfulness. We thought, he's not going to amount to much. And up until the end of Judges 16, we still thought that. But God 
had greater plans. God worked in spite of Samson. He made him a threat to the Philistines so the Philistines would feel anxious and that they would know that they needed to act. And then God allowed for Samson in his foolishness to make really dumb decisions so that he would be placed into the hands of the Philistines as the source of his strength was given up. And yet, despite that, God did not abandon Samson. And in fact, God used that discipline of Samson to humble him and at some point save him. Samson wasn't perfect. He didn't demonstrate really that he fully understood what salvation was supposed to be about. He didn't demonstrate that he fully understood that it was really about God and his glory, not about his two eyes. But despite that deficiency, even uh, because he had placed his faith in God, God extended saving grace to Samson at some point to, allow, to save him and allow for him to be a part of the faithful lineage that paved the way for Jesus to come to this earth at the right time. And he did that by avenging Samson and bringing the Philistines low. If God can use a sinner like Samson to accomplish his purposes, even when Samson looked like a hopeless case, how much more can we have confidence in God when we don't understand what God is doing? Right? When we don't understand what God, why God is allowing certain circumstances into our lives. I know that it's not easy to feel comforted and hopeful when you enter into the unknown and we're just, we're just saying, I don't know what God is doing, but I know he's good. I know that's not helpful. I know that's not entirely helpful. I know that's frustrating to hear because you hear from everybody because they don't know what to say. It might seem like God is not doing anything, but he is absolutely doing something. He's always doing something. We see that in the life of Samson. He sovereignly, providentially moves everything to accomplish his plan. And as much as we saw Samson fail today, we saw the faithful God who stood behind him and used him despite his sin. So, application. Yes, we definitely don't want to be like Samson in our living. Right? We don't want to be like that. Um, but let's also not forget the big picture, too. Like God is sovereignly moving everything to accomplish his purposes, to glorify himself. You might not know why you're going through the things that you're going through right now. You might not know why you're struggling to find your profession or your job or why things are going wrong in your family. You might not know that. You might not understand that, but you can know and have confidence that God is absolutely doing something, even though you don't know what he's doing. And it's going to eventually culminate, it's eventually going to lead to when we get to go home. When we get to go home. It's all leading up into that. So everything that you're doing right now, it's not useless leading you to something, to something greater. And that is what drives us in hope, even when we cannot see it. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful to you for the story of Samson and for how you show us, for how you show us that you don't give up on us, even though we definitely deserve being abandoned. You're always doing something. And we pray that, Lord, you would give us eyes of faith and you give us endurance and perseverance so that we can endure to the end, so that we can see you in your glory. Help us change our mindset, to shift our mindset so that we're not just looking at ourselves and seeing 
what's going wrong in our lives so that we can see how everything works together to push us closer to you in the end. Help us to have this greater picture, this greater vision. And as we learn from Samson, help us to humble ourselves before you and to allow for you to move us where you want us to be. Break us of our pride, Lord. Get us ready to do your will, whatever it may be, even if it hurts. We're grateful to you for your love and for your grace and your sons, and we pray. Amen.